ages three and four in kindergarten through fifth grade can head to Children's Church at this time. John chapter six, if it were put to a song, would sound just like the song we just sang. So would you go ahead and open your Bibles up, please, to John chapter six. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a pew rack in front of you. And if you're new to the Bible, I'll give you a shortcut to find John 6 in the Pew Bible. It's going to be on page 947. Page 947, John chapter 6 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. It's good to see you. I missed you last Sunday. You all look very familiar, only a little chubbier than I remember. And just for future reference, it is okay on the Sunday after Thanksgiving to wear pants with an elastic waistband. You, this is a judgment-free zone, and so uh, feel free to adjust your wardrobe accordingly. But hope you had a great week, and uh, I'm so grateful to get to worship with you this morning. Uh, I want you to imagine this scenario with me. Uh, imagine one night there's a knock on the front door of my house, And I open the door, and there stands uh, a doctor. She's clearly a doctor. She's wearing a white lab coat. She has a stethoscope around her neck. I was not expecting this, and I ask, can I help you? And she responds, yes, Mr. Busby. My name is Dr. Jones, and uh, I am here because I have an important message for you. I'm a cardiologist, and I need to give you some information about yourself. To which I respond, I'm so glad you're here. We were just about to eat dinner. Come on in. Melissa, pull out another plate. Dr. What's your name again? Jones. Dr. Jones is here, and she's going to join us for dinner. We bring her in. We sit down at the table, uh, us and our girls and Dr. Jones, and we eat a great meal together, and we enjoy dessert and coffee, and then we play a board game together. And then we begin to tell stories about our families, and we laugh a lot, and it's a great time. And then the end of the night comes, and I walk her to the door and thank her for coming and tell Dr. Jones goodbye. And I close the door behind her, and then my wife Melissa says to me, what was that all about? What was she here for? And I would have to say, she said she had a message for me, but I never got around to hearing what that was. But didn't we have a marvelous night I sure hope we can do it again soon. It's a ridiculous example. You would never have an uninvited guest in your house who said they had a message for you, not share what that message is. It's a ridiculous hypothetical. And yet, this is precisely the way so many people go through the Christmas season year after year. Jesus is an uninvited guest with a message of eternal life, and we never stop and inquire, why are you here? Why have you come? What's the purpose of your birth? Christmas is full of so many things that that feel familiar and comfortable. We love the traditions and the food and the drink and being with family and all that goes into the season. We love all of that. And we are remarkably capable of escaping the very reason for the coming of Christ by going through this season with our minds on cruise control and, and traditions feeding the comfort of our hearts. It's a tragedy, really, when we experience Christmas in this way without thinking about the purpose of Christ's coming. So for this Christmas, what we're going to do here at South Shore Baptist is we're going to give our Sundays to considering why it is that Jesus came. 
We're not going to spend our time studying traditional Christmas passages. We've done that in other years. We'll do it in years to come. Uh, but rather, we're going to focus our time on passages where Jesus speaks to the purpose of his coming. Why was he born? What did he come to do? That's what we want to understand with clarity through this Christmas season. And we begin our Christmas season in John chapter 6. You're already there in your Bible. And this is a pretty remarkable scene. John chapter 6 is a beefy chapter of the Bible. There's a lot going on, and it's a long chapter uh, of the Bible. Um, but we find Jesus here in John chapter 6, surrounded by a crowd of people who are enamored with his miracles. And they even like some of the teachings that he gives. And in all of their excitement about Jesus, they reveal a profound lack of understanding for the purpose of his coming. Why did he come to their village? Why did he come at all? Why did he do the miracles he did? Why did he teach the things that he did? They never break through to understand why it is that he's come. Now, Jesus, ever the patient teacher, goes through a Q&A session with this crowd in order to help them understand the purpose of his arrival. So my purpose today in preaching this passage is for you to grasp what the crowd in John chapter 6 missed, what the crowds that surround our lives miss all too often, and that's the life-changing reason for the coming of Jesus. Before we read our passage in John 6, I want to show you a quick breakdown of the chapter that I think might help your understanding because it is such a thick piece of scripture. So let me show you just a real simple outline of John chapter 6. It starts with two miracles. The first miracle is Jesus feeding the 5,000. Second miracle is Jesus walking on water. You see, he feeds the 5,000. And then people see the disciples get in a boat and sail across the Sea of Galilee, but Jesus didn't get in the boat with them. And the next day they wake up and they notice the extra boat that Jesus should have taken is still there, and they begin to think and talk amongst themselves, where did he go? And how did he get there if the boat left before he could get on it? First miracle, feeding the multitude. Second miracle, walking on water. And then... He had, the crowd tracks him down. They find him at another seaside village on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus interacts with four different groups in the rest of John chapter 6. He starts by interacting with the multitude, the crowd. That's where our focus is going to be this morning. From there, he pivots to have this interaction with, um, with Jewish leaders who oppose him. From there, he turns in his interaction with some followers of his. They're called disciples, not disciples as in the 12, but there are some of his followers who find his teaching in John 6 offensive, and they split. And then the chapter ends with Jesus addressing the 12 disciples, are you going to leave too? And they say to Jesus what you just sang, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. So... Jesus' interaction with this crowd, the multitude whom he fed the day before, that's who we're going to give our attention to this morning. So I want you to follow along with me as I read John chapter 6, and I'm going to start in verse 22. So the next day, that's the day after he's fed the multitude, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw there had been only one boat. They also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. Some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. 
And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. What sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you, they asked. What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So, as the readers... We are numbered among the multitude this morning. We are the crowd that ate the miracle bread on one day and chased Jesus around the Sea of Galilee the next day. We are the crowd who has this Q&A session with Jesus. We, we ask four questions. He gives four answers. And in this interaction, we're hearing Jesus explain to us why it is that he has come. What's the purpose of his birth in his arrival. And here in John chapter 6, this passage has four things to say to us about the reasons for Christ's coming. The first three of those are negative. The last one is positive. It's the purpose statement itself. And so we're going to learn much about why he did not come and why he did come this morning. The first thing we learn about the coming of Jesus from this passage is this. Jesus did not come to give us more stuff. He did not come to give us more stuff. The scene opens, as you remember, with this crowd chasing Jesus down. And you have to keep in mind, as you read through John chapter 6, if you go home and spend time studying this chapter on your own, you have to keep in mind that Jesus' interactions are with the people who ate the miracle bread he provided the day before. And so these people who were chasing Jesus and tracking him down were among those 5,000 who experienced the miracle. And when they find Jesus is gone, they go on a hunt, they get in their boats, or they take off running until they find him. Now, here's what I want you to imagine. Imagine you're in this crowd, and you recognize Jesus should have got in a boat, but we didn't see him get in a boat. The man who performed this miracle the day before... Well, He's gone from here, but we didn't see him go north, and we didn't see him walk south. We, we haven't seen him go in, get in a boat or anything, but he's gone. Where did he go, and how did he get there? And so imagine you track Jesus down. 
in the little village of Capernaum, you finally find him, what's the first question you might ask him? You might ask him, how did you get here? We didn't see you on this road. We didn't see you on that road. We didn't see you in the boat. How did you get here? That's what we would ask. But did you notice what the crowd asked when they found Jesus? In verse 25, they asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? What a dumb question. Well, I got here about 1030. All right, thanks. See you later, Jesus. They ask a wrong question. And so as a student of this passage, right away, you think to yourself, something's off about this crowd. They don't even know to ask the right question. This is exceedingly strange. And that's not news to Jesus. He knows something's not right with these people. So he doesn't answer the question they ask. They ask, when did you get here? But Jesus, in response, diagnoses their motivation for following him. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered, truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. The problem with this crowd is that they aren't chasing Jesus. They're chasing bread. Jesus knows this. They, they haven't reflected on the spiritual significance of the miracle they had just experienced. They should have been asking, what does this bread mean? He took a little bit of food. He multiplied it. He fed thousands of people in this miracle. What does this bread mean about him? But instead, the only thing they're wondering is, where can we get more bread? All they want is bread. They only want Jesus for what he can give them. His value to them lies only in what he can produce. These people are crass materialists. And have you ever found that mindset in yourself? Have you ever stopped to evaluate the motivations of your heart in your relationship with the Lord? Or the content of your prayers? Or the ways by which you distinguish blessed versus burdened, God is for me versus God is against me? So often, there's a materialistic heart at the core of our relationship with the Lord. These ancient people would fit right in with the way so many people approach Jesus today. We call ourselves blessed when we have a lot of things. We call ourselves burdened when we don't have the material things that we want. And when we approach Jesus in prayer for more and more stuff, we are just like these bread seekers. Now it's true, when Jesus teaches us to pray, he teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. But even in asking for our daily bread, we are expressing faith, dependence, trust in the one who gives us eternal life and all good things. These people just want stuff from Jesus. And so he diagnoses their hearts. And in doing so, he's, we have to be mature enough in this passage to acknowledge he's not talking to other people. He's talking to me, the reader. I have to be the one to examine my heart. And to think to myself, am I coming to Jesus just for the things he can provide? So Jesus gives the correction in verse 27. You came for me just for bread. Verse 27, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. So Jesus lifts their eyes from the things of earth to the things of eternal life. And this is a common theme throughout Jesus' teaching. He recognizes that 
Our stuff is a monumental hindrance to our faith in the Father. Our possessions, especially those who have accumulated a lot, they are at a huge disadvantage in understanding their need for rescue by faith in the one sent by the Father. Consider what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. Do you remember these words? He said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or your body about what you will wear. Won't your heavenly Father care for you? Oh, you of little faith, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all these things will be provided for you. Over and over throughout Jesus' ministry, He is lifting our eyes from material things that make for crummy gods to the one for whom we were created and by whom we were created. He lifts us to our most immediate concern, and that is eternal life. So it's not uncommon that at this time of year we would feel special gratitude for the things we have or for the people we love. But if we've listened to Jesus properly here, we will naturally lift our eyes to our Heavenly Father who is the giver of every good thing. Recognizing all that He has given should produce in us greater love and trust in Him. So why did Jesus come? Well, he didn't come to satisfy our materialistic needs. He didn't come to give us more stuff. He came for a better reason. This story has a second comment to make about the reason for his coming. And the second thing it teaches us is that Jesus did not come to make us better performers. Remember I said we, we start with three negatives before we get to the positive. Jesus did not come to make us better performers, better religious performers or merely better moral people. So the crowd has this first interaction with Jesus, and then they immediately ask a second question. Their second question in verse 28 is, what can we do to perform the works of God? Now, I don't take them to be asking Jesus, how can we do miracles like you do miracles? I don't think that's the heart of the question. I think this is a natural second question coming off of Jesus' first response. He's lifted them from materialistic things to spiritual things, and so now they're asking, what are the works we can do so that God would give us this eternal life you've spoken of? So they've done well to move from, from earthly things to heavenly things, but still their question shows how little they understand the heart of God. They want to know what performance is required of us for God to show us favor, to give us eternal life. And again, here these people are materialistic, and now they show themselves to be performance-driven, and it's amazing how modern they sound. Isn't that just like so many of us, that one, we would be consumed with material things, and two, we would conclude that our performance would merit God's favor and love. Oh, he'll do me well because I'm a good person. He'll do me well because I've earned this from him. There we show ourselves to be just like these bread-seeking performers. It's, it's important to remember that these are religious people. These aren't people who have no concept of God, no concept of the Scriptures. They've got a, this solid foundation of religious training. And still the great temptation that they face and that all religious people face is the temptation to try and earn the love of God through our good deeds. 
And when we do that, we show that we truly don't understand who we are, nor do we understand who God is. But still, we'll say, hey, I I attend church. I give of my time and resources. I'm a good neighbor. I'm a valuable employee. Look, I know I'm not as good as a great person, but I'm not as bad as the worst person. God should do me well. Jesus answers them and us in verse 29. Verse 29, Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. They asked about works plural. He answered about work singular. Here's the work, faith. Such an interesting combination there. Here's the work you're supposed to do, believe. Believe in the one the Father has sent. Now, I want to tell you that verse 29 is the interpretive center of John chapter 6. As you study through John chapter 6, you're going to hit on some things that are a little rough to make sense of, especially when Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And how are we to make sense of a command like that? Verse 29 is the interpretive center of this chapter. What is the work I am to do? Is the work I am to do for eternal life, is is that to eat and drink what the church gives me? No, Jesus says it is to believe in the one the Father has sent. Don't forget that as you study John chapter 6 or as you even consider your religious background. Faith is the feast of eternal life. That's what saves So with the first question, Jesus lifted their eyes from material things to spiritual things. With this second question, Jesus turned their eyes from their own works to himself. They will never be able to perform the kinds of works that would make them right with God. They're incapable of perfectly keeping the Mosaic law. And so they stand condemned even where they are. Jesus answers them perfectly, helping them understand better the reason he came He came for their eternal life. They have to believe in him. According to Jesus, the Father has planned that faith in the Son is essential for anyone's salvation. Good people don't get saved. Religious people don't have eternal life. Believing people are those who are children of their heavenly Father. Those are the ones who are rescued from sin and granted eternal life. God the Father sent God the Son so that you would believe. He didn't send him to make you more moral, to be a better performer. He didn't send him to give us more stuff, to bless us with more things. And there's a third reason that Jesus did not come, as articulated in John 6. The third reason, Jesus did not come to be cast aside. So this crowd will not be deterred. Jesus has told them that they have to believe in him. And their next question in verse 30 is, What sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you? Now they make two mistakes here in their question of Jesus. First of all, they have such short memories. Their tummies are still full with the miracle bread from the day before. They're brushing crumbs out of their beards as they ask Jesus, what sign are you going to do so that we can believe in you? They saw the sign the day before. But that wasn't enough. Here's the second mistake they make. They challenge Jesus personally. The the word you 
used repeatedly in their question is emphatic. So it would sound like this, what sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you? What are you going to perform? Like when they asked him what works they could do to earn God's favor, they, they just want the good teacher, the miracle man, to tell them, all right, here's, here's, the, here's the seven or ten things that you've got to do. But when he turns it to himself, when he says, you've got to believe in me, they cannot process it, they cannot handle that. So they speak to Jesus with indignation in their voice. What are you going to do? Don't we know? We know your parents. You're just, you're from, you went to Nazareth High School just down the road. We know you. What are you going to do? And even then, they aren't done with their indignation. They, they ramp up their attempt to discredit Jesus one more time by trying to falsely compare him to Moses, by saying, well, you're not as good as Moses. You, you've done some good things, but you're not as good as Moses. Verse 31, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. Just as it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So it, it's as if this is what they're saying to Jesus in this moment. moment. They're saying, you know, hey, Moses... He gave the people manna for 40 years, but you've only given us miracle food on this one occasion. Moses supplied manna for a whole nation, but you provided bread just for 5,000 people. I mean, it's not a small thing, but it's not Moses equivalent. You know, Moses gave our ancestors bread from heaven but you only just gave us ordinary, everyday bread. I mean, it, it was good, but it wasn't like heaven bread. It was just normal bread. And then in the weirdest move of all, they credit Moses and not God as the bread provider. They misquote this Old Testament line, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. In Jesus' response, it's clear that they attribute the he to Moses. Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Are, are you greater than our father Moses? <laughs> you're good, but you're not quite that good. So Jesus responded first by correcting them in verse 32. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. My father is emphatic. You may call yourself a child of Moses. I'm a child of God. I am God the Son in the flesh. He's my father. So if we're playing Father Trump cards, I win right here. I've got it right. And my father gives you the true bread from heaven. You think manna for 40 years in the wilderness for a nation of people is impressive? It is. But it's a sign that points to a greater reality, and that's me. I am the bread from heaven that's come to give eternal life to the world. You see, Moses gave food for a nation. Jesus is saying, I I've come to give myself for the people of the world. You see, the mistake the crowd has made is that they want to be right with God, but they refuse to believe that Jesus is the avenue through which that will happen. They'll accept Jesus as a miracle maker, and they'll accept Jesus as a good teacher. They call him rabbi, but they can't accept that Jesus himself is the way to eternal life. And sadly, that, that way of thinking about Jesus has not stayed in the first century. It's a very modern mindset. Many people will think of Jesus as a good teacher, have no problem with that. 
And many people will turn to Jesus in an emergency for a miracle. Jesus, I need you to bail me out of this. But when it comes down to saying that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him, so many people recoil. Just like these ancient people, we modern people struggle to believe that Jesus is the one from God the Father, the creator of all things, through whom eternal life is found. And it shocks me, even today, how prominent this struggle is even among Christian people. Christian people who love the Lord and and who put their faith in Jesus, yet struggle to understand the implications and the importance of Jesus' very own words that He is the way to eternal life. No one else. You don't get credit for worshiping a false god. You don't get credit for doing the best you can with the knowledge you have. These are not the words of Christ. The words of Christ are, I have come to give life to the world. He is the one through whom eternal life is found. It's not enough that he's a good teacher. Not enough that he's a miracle worker. He is everything to us. He is the only way to eternal life. So Jesus didn't come to be cast aside. He's not one road of many roads up the mountain to some amorphous God. He's the God who destroyed the mountain of requirements and descended to rescue us from the hell we've created for ourselves by our own sin. So he didn't come to give us more stuff, and he didn't come to make us better performers, and he didn't come to be cast aside. So why did he come? Fourth and finally, Jesus came to give eternal life to those who believe. You knew that, right? Jesus came to give eternal life to those who believe. Why was he born? What's this whole season about? He's come to give eternal life to those who believe. The fourth and final exchange between the crowd and Jesus doesn't start with a question this time, but it begins with a request. Verse 34, the people say, Sir, give us this bread always. It is a noble request, but it still falls short. They are asking for physical bread. Give us the magic loaf. That's what they want. They're not understanding what it is that Jesus is saying. And so Jesus makes it clear to them in his response. He says, I am the bread of life. Jesus connects all of life to himself. He alone is the nourishment for our spiritual lives. He says, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry. And no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. You know, just a moment ago, Jesus spoke of the reason for his coming. He said, I came down from heaven to give life to the world. Now he invites his listeners to come to him. I've come to you. Now you come to me. And when you do, you'll never be hungry. You'll never be thirsty again. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. Come to me and find the nourishment for your souls. He states that those who come to him are those whom the Father has given him. And he's not going to lose a single one of those people. Those whom the Father has given to him will believe in him, and they will be given eternal life, and Jesus will raise them up on the last day. There's a problem with this pesky crowd. What's the problem? The problem Jesus states it in verse 36. As I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. You ate the miracle food. I walked on water. You caught up to me and asked me questions. I give you the answers, and still you do not believe. Spiritually, they are starving 
They are religious people. They are starving for spiritual nourishment. They are spiritually dying of thirst. The bread of life, the living water, stands in front of them, and they still don't believe. He had fed them the day before, so they would ask questions of him, but the bread in their bellies was a sign that he himself is the bread of life, but they missed it. They missed all of it. Their disbelief was a tragedy, but consider what a greater tragedy it is today with the knowledge we have and the things that we've seen for us to be people who still don't believe. We've seen Jesus go to the cross, and we've seen the empty tomb, and we've seen Jesus ascend to the right hand of the Father, and we've seen God the Holy Spirit come. The people of John chapter 6 didn't know any of this yet, so their disbelief is almost understandable, almost, but our disbelief is devastating. Jesus gave this incredible promise. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. You going to get hungry later today? Are, are you hungry right now? It's a very distinct possibility. You're going to be thirsty later today. It's almost as if he has built into the regular rhythms of our lives this reminder that we need a nourishment greater than what's on our plate. We need water greater than what's in our cup. We need the life that comes only from Him. Every time we sit to eat, it's a temporary satisfaction. What He has promised to all those who come to Him in faith, you'll never be hungry again, never be thirsty again. You'll have all that you've ever needed and ever desired in Him. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, that, that's a promise that you'll be given eternal life. And if you are a follower of Jesus, this is the promise that holds you through every difficulty. And, and what's more, it's the promise that motivates our evangelistic efforts. We know that our towns are filled with those whom the Father has given to the Son. And they may hide behind beautiful homes in every worldly success. But they have to hear the gospel. And they have to hear it from someone like you. And they have to hear it in order to believe the Father has given them to the, to the Son and everyone who comes to Him will never be hungry again, never be thirsty again. They have to hear and believe because Jesus came to give them eternal life. They might think today, yeah, Jesus was born and we can celebrate that, but they have to understand He came for them to give them eternal life when they believe in Him. So why was Jesus born? What's the purpose of his coming? It wasn't so we could have more stuff, and it wasn't so we'd be better performers, or, or, or that he would be cast aside as unimportant, or just one more godlike figure in the pantheon of mankind's gods. He was born to give eternal life to those who believe. And so it begs the question of us in this room, are you a believer? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? And if not, I want to speak directly to you for a moment. Why would anyone become a follower of Jesus? Why would someone renounce every other spiritual path or every other self-directed path to hold exclusively, totally to Jesus Christ? There's a lot of reasons why you might not want to do that. You might be perfectly comfortable with a Jesus of your own making rather than the Jesus of the Bible. Or you might object to the idea that Jesus alone is the only way to eternal life. Or you might find the words of Jesus offensive, too offensive to attach your life to. 
But then maybe, maybe you'll hear the message of Jesus and recognize in yourself a spiritual hunger that's never been truly satisfied. The main issue is, is not just that all the things you've tried haven't worked and Jesus will work. This is not just about mere pragmatism. This is about what you were created for. There comes a point when you realize Jesus is meeting you at the point of your objection. He's not just the better tool in a drawer full of tools. He comes to you in your rejection of Him, your sin against Him. And He comes to you with the gift of eternal life. He's the God who loves you, the God who has pursued you. And though by your sin you've pushed Him away, He's not going to allow that to happen. Because you've been given to Him by the Father. And he's not going to lose anyone that he's been given. And so he comes to you with the promise of eternal life if you would believe in him. You're a sinner. You're a miracle chaser. You're an objector. Yet he found you and he offers you eternal life. He offers you that eternal life at the cost of his own. He died on the cross for your sin and three days later he rose from the dead. And only the God-man, born of the virgin, can do that. He's the one and only perfect sacrifice for our sin. And his promise to you, right here in John chapter 6, is that if you believe in him, you will be given eternal life. And he keeps that promise. And so my urgent request of you today is that you would make Christ the Lord of your life. You would turn from your sin and your self-righteousness and you would give your life to Christ by faith. And what about those of you who have already believed and already walked with Jesus? What about you for whom uh, who have been given to the Son by the Father. What are you to do with a passage like this that calls for believing faith? Well, the answer is simple. Here's what we do with this passage. We believe. The belief that this passage calls you to is not the faith that leads to salvation since you already possess that. But even possessing saving faith, isn't it true that for Christians our faith is frequently under attack and under assault by the enemy? Our walk with Jesus is not some easy thing. I, I struggle with the song in our hymnal, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. I love the sentiment. And there's a day that's going to be true. I'm not sure it's today. Because sometimes this day with Jesus is much harder than the day before. I, give me yesterday. And so he speaks to us at the point where our faith begins to fracture, where doubts are boiling up, where we're beginning to ask questions about who he is and our place with him. We look at the sin in our lives, perhaps, or the situations that we're enduring, that are crushing us, and we just wonder, God, where are you and what's happening here? And that's where the message of John chapter 6 rises up in our hearts and our ears compel us to believe once again in the one who is the bread of life, the one who nourishes us and holds us fast. If today you are a believer struggling with belief, you're not a weirdo, and you're not alone, and you're not a horrible person, and you certainly are not kicked out of the kingdom of God. But Jesus invites you again to the feast of faith. He will help you with your unbelief because he loves you. He's faithful when we're unfaithful. And even though your personal crisis may not yet be fully resolved, you'll find that he has renewed your faith once again when you come to him. The baby born in Bethlehem, the man killed on Golgotha and resurrected to life again underneath that same hill is your Savior, and he will not lose you no matter what. 
So perhaps you start your response to John chapter 6 by praying verse 39. Jesus, thank you for not losing me. Thank you for holding me until that last day. Perhaps with that prayer in hand, you can once again live in the power and courage of one chosen by the grace of God and given to the Son for eternal life. Jesus doesn't leave us in spiritual starvation, but he guides us in abundance. So why was Jesus born? Well, I recently came across a small verse written by Augustine, and it answers this question in the same way John chapter 6 does. And the verse is this, He who for us is life itself descended here and endured our death and slew it by the abundance of his life. And so, brothers and sisters, may we do the work of the Father and believe in the one he sent. Let's pray. Father, here we find ourselves in this crowd. We have heard of the miracles. We've seen the miracles. We've seen great things. And yet faith for us does not come easy. So my prayer this morning is for those in here who don't know you as their Savior, who, don't, who haven't put their faith in Christ for their rescue. Though they may be religious and moral and good people and and everything positive, God, I pray that you would convince them of their need for rescue this morning, that they cannot perform the works of God by which to be saved. But there's only one who can do that. It's your son, Jesus Christ, who came to die. Father, open their hearts to faith today. You've given them to the son. Let him receive them today when they put their faith in him. And Lord God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in the faith where our struggles are many, our faith is fractured. Lord, help us with our unbelief. Thank you for your patience and your grace to us. Thank you for your mercy given to us daily. And Lord, being renewed in our faith, let us be those who walk in courage and strength into the days ahead, days that are certain. You will not lose us. You will hold us and raise us up on that last day. Give us this hope, even now. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.